Welcome back to EnterTheRealWorld.com. It's been so long since there will be movies ended, but we're back with a brand new podcast for the brand new year. We're recording this before 2020 has arrived. Presumably 2020 is a year that really exists, but we'll we'll find out if you're hearing this. My name is Matt Waters. I'm joined for this brand new podcast by Ben Phillips. Ben, before we get into like what we're doing here, although if you look at the episode descriptions, you can see. But anyway, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. It's been it's not been a while, but it's been yeah. a, like a, a couple of weeks. I mean, I could ask how your Christmas has been, but like we don't know yet. What are your strong predictions on how your Christmas is going to be? Lots of food, lots yeah. of booze. Yeah, I might have to show my grandmother the favourite, which will go very interestingly. Oh, I'm sure. Oh no! Why <laughs> must you? Did you uh, lose a bet? She, no, because she wants to watch it because it's got like royal people in it, and I'm sat there <laughs> kind of going like, oh, do I want to show her the very very gay? Oh, no. Very, very offbeat <laughs> movie about a, a member of the royal family. Yeah, where Emma Stone fingers a sponge or something like that. Well, we're not doing that. We are. This is called Secret Agent Men as the dope-ass intro song. Thank you, Saskia Parks. I suggest, so this is a podcast dealing with Bond, Born, and Mission Impossible. It's not a B, so it's not quite alliterative. But yes, the three big secret agent spy action film series, and they bounced off each other, they they arose from the ashes with each other, where, you know, two of these are big legacy franchises that kind of made comebacks and got bad and got good again, and then Born just sort of... I mean, there are books but it did kind of in the film in the filmic sense just came out of nowhere and... but it's actually quite interesting that Bond and Born are both based on books but also absolutely not based on books <laughs> I don't think either of them apart from maybe the first movie in the series are mm. actually like take the plot from the book that they're based on yeah they take titles and loose concepts and that's it but yeah so this is episode one so we're going to do Mission Impossible the first release 1996 which my god that was so long ago and yet I remember it well yeah i would have been seven so some of my earliest memories are from 1996 but i do i did not remember watching mission impossible at the time obviously tiny baby child but mission impossible is a film that i feel the sort of handful of big big scenes are just ingrained in everyone's memory and, and have been for a very long time but it's been a while since i watched it start to finish so if we get nothing else out of this podcast we've achieved that yeah i mean i, I genuinely cannot remember the last time i watched watch this movie all in one sitting it's one of those ones that's like it feels like it was just always on and you would just kind of like tune in and i've seen this movie more times in like piecemeal than in an actual like (laughs) contained sitting yes as we go we're gonna kind of contrast and compare the the sort of journey as they a lot of i think fair criticism or, or maybe not even criticism just pointing out that they started to kind of copy each other or riff off each other or adapt to each other but obviously as this is the beginning of our journey we can't do that and also i should point out obviously there are 24 bond films soon 25 to be, by the time we finish this well I, yeah soon to be 25 we're not going to do them all because that would be a much longer podcast and it would just be 
a lot of uninterrupted Bond, and we thought it would be fun to flip between them. So we're doing Daniel Craig Bond. There was a strong push to potentially cover Goldeneye, because it's fucking great, and came out one and a bit years before this, I think. Yeah, like, it, it, the kind of unwritten statement of this is Mission Impossible doesn't become the Mission Impossible that's reacting to stuff until Mission Impossible 3. And there were, like, three different pitches for this series, which were start with Goldeneye, start with Mission Impossible, start with Mission Impossible 3, although start with Bourne. It's one thing to start at Goldeneye and then either skip over the rest of the Brosnan ones or do all of the Brosnan ones and then do the Craig ones and it's another to just do the two less good Mission Impossibles before they got good so yeah like that, yeah, this that's is like, the thing is like we are doing one dreadful movie yes as part of this like War Other Than also covering Die Another Day which mm. I mean it would be a battle which movie is worse out of those two yeah one is not enough isn't great either I mean but does it <laughs> have invisible cars and a man getting plastic surgery because he's got diamonds in his face to get Halle- to sleep removed with a machine and there's a massive satellite that fires the sun at things. Yeah. There's a joke about Halle Berry like wanting something bigger and then you cut in and see that he's like putting diamonds into her belly button. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> this is Mission Impossible <laughs> 1. Directed by Brian De Palma of Scarface and The Untouchables and many other films fame. Coming into this though, I don't think he'd had much of a hit and that was sort of his impetus behind doing it. He wanted a big commercially successful film again and this was. I mean, was, it, was it Kalita's way before this one? Yeah, probably the yeah. last big one before this, yeah. But he had a whole bunch of films that like I barely remember or if I know of them, they're bad and, and so he... He's, he's one of those one of those names who kind of like I feel like the 90s hit them hard. <laughs> I mean, like, you look at his 80s, like Blowout, Scarface, Untouchables, yeah. all all really great. Bonfire the Vanities is Bonfire the Vanities. <laughs> and then life comes at you first. <laughs> you know, and he would go on to make that... How is it so boring, um, the Black Dahlia? Considering the subject matter and the actors he's got to work with, how did he make that so boring? So that's that was his vested interest here, is to is to get a hit going again. Written by David Coep, Cop, I don't know how to pronounce that, Cop, maybe? Who wrote fucking Jurassic Park and Spider-Man 1, amongst many other very good films. Robert Town, who did fucking Chinatown, the old man from Uncle TV show, so that makes some sense. And more importantly, he wrote Days of Thunder and The Firm, both starring one Thomas Cruise. And then Stephen Zalian gets a story credit, Schindler's List, Gangs of New York, The Irishman, many other films. So, you know, it's a pretty solid group of writers there. Possibly the best trio, I don't know, I mean, off the top of my head, that we're gonna get in this series, but we'll see. There's some good writers. I feel like these these are writers who are kind of not slumming it, but this isn't like their best script. Like you list all that, you list you list their great movies. Where there are other writers who do this, whose best script is arguably the Bond or the Bourne or the the Mission Impossible that they wrote. Oh yeah, I just mean like before the movie even gets made, that's a pretty solid team to attach to it. Especially to think like this is based on a television show. I know. <laughs> Have you seen a single episode of? Mission uh, I haven't seen a single episode. I think my entire knowledge of the show is obviously like the theme song being great and. Also, the fact that Peter Graves hates this movie. Yeah, he does. <laughs> the self-destructing tapes, the montage of clips from the upcoming episode that spoil it if you're paying enough attention. The theme song, IMF, Impossible Missions Force. Like, <laughs> what a great... I, they are wise to call them your IM Force or, or just IMF in, in this rather than fully acknowledging there is a government task force called <laughs> Impossible Missions Force. It is just under two hours. $80 million budget, $458 million gross. That is a hefty sum of profit, but... This is Tom Cruise at his, like, Tom Cruise kingiest. 
is that ninety stretch where I mean, is it is it the same year he's got Jerry Maguire? Yeah, so he does he does Jerry Maguire and Mission Impossible in the same year. Yeah, he is. He's flexing. Like, this is this is kind of like, and there's an argument to be made that Tom Cruise is kind of like the last vestige of the great movie stars of the like nineties, mm. where just him being in it is enough to make a movie, and he's one of those people who still just him being in a movie is enough to get people in seats, unless it's the money, but that's <laughs> neither here nor there. But it's also about this era where like the people that Tom Cruise is working with are also kind of insane, where like <laughs> Oliver Stone, Tony Scott, Ron Howard, Rob Reiner, Sidney Polak, mm. Brian De Palma, Cameron Crowe, Kubrick, Paul Thomas Anderson, and then in the early 2000s it's like Steven Spielberg. And it's just like this like huge name, huge name, huge name, and he's more interested in kind of working with big name directors, of which Brian De Palma definitely is and i have to imagine that tom cruise is the guy going like i want to work with someone interesting on this can we get brian de palma or someone of that kind of stature to do this movie that's exactly it so paramount owned the rights to the tv show they were trying to make a film for a long time couldn't get it together and cruise was a big fan of the show growing up so he had started a new production company i think cruise wagner I think their logo is at the beginning. And he chose this as his first project. And at first it was him and Sidney Pollack, but then he hired Brian De Palma, who brought with him this writing team. And they made multiple drafts and nobody liked any of them. And they started production without a shooting script or any kind of script, really. But Brian De Palma had designed his big action set pieces and the writers didn't like how they got from action piece to action piece. I mean, there's not, there's not much this movie does in between the action set pieces. Well, I, I would say that is my entire review of the thing. It's very obvious that they just wrote down their big action scenes and then didn't have a fucking clue how to connect them because Town gave them a beginning, middle, and end and, and Cop and De Palma tried to fill in the gaps, but, like, all of the connective tissue of this movie is so sketchy to bad. The it's big scenes how- are really, really good, but it's just anything that's happening between them is confusing or bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it's so confusing. It's insane how convoluted everything is when they're like talking about the plot of it, and it, it kind of becomes like the the staple for these kind of movies is that like they really are kind of incomprehensible. These kind of spy movies in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I still don't think I fully have down the kind of machinations behind everything that goes on Casino Royale. No, not really. <laughs> well, we'll see if we get it any better next time. Like, like it's a great movie, Casino Royale, but I also think it's just kind of like I feel like you have to be paying full attention to like understand everything it's like early game of thrones you sit there and you watch it and you go like i don't know who anyone is i'm just attacked i'll like, just go uh, with it and i'll yeah. i'll emotionally attach to people and just trust that they're on the right side of things oh no wait they're not and then you get to the end of it and you go like oh yeah i know every single character's name but because these <laughs> movies come out once every like four years there's yeah. no chance for you to do that and the other thing is there's no supporting cast really for any of these movies so speaking of how convoluted it is how like the big scenes are, and what connects it our mission this time around so just Jim Phelps, of the original TV show, the only returning character, and, you know, the IMF has a a concept return from the show. So he and his team are deployed to prevent the theft of a copy of the knock list. That is a list of the real names of all the undercover agents of, I don't know if it's the CIA or just the entire of the US. Yeah, because they they break into Langley, so it's presumably the CIA, like the the non-official cover list. Yes. So they get word that uh, it's going to be stolen from a US embassy in Prague, and then when the mission goes south, Ethan Hunt is left as the only survivor and is framed and is forced to go undercover to find the real mole and clear his name. That is your big overarching plot of this. It is the premise we are presented with early on. I think it's sketchy at best. Like, it's really unclear at times why he's doing what he's doing. Beyond just the broad, I have to find out who the real undercover person is and clear
clear my name. It's like, wait, what are you doing right now? Why are you stealing the real list? Like, He's stealing the real list because he has to give Max the real list uh-huh. so that she could trust him enough to bring Job there, even though Job... Would probably though- be there anyway. <laughs> Just, just go to the meeting with a blank fucking disc, man. Which he has. He has a blank fucking I know he disc. does. <laughs> instead, like, instead, like the, the climax of this movie is based around the Wi-Fi signal maybe not being good enough. <laughs> Pretty much. And our agent for this movie is, as I mentioned, Ethan Hunt. So Tom Cruise, let's be real. There isn't much in the way, certainly in these early ones, there isn't much in the way of a personality to Ethan Hunt that makes him, that distinguishes him. He's kind of just playing Tom Cruise in every action movie starring well, Tom Cruise. Like, yeah, that's, that's the thing. Is like This is before Tom Cruise's meltdown, which we'll get into in like later episodes. <laughs> This is like movie star Tom Cruise, who's kind of a bit of a blank cipher where he just jumps from movie to movie and he's kind of always perfect. Yes. All of the movies he's in, he is very much kind of like the great hero at the centre. I think like like Born on the 4th of July is kind of the closest he got before now to being... In any way like, flawed. <laughs> yeah, and then Joe Maguire, Maguire, he's definitely very flawed in mm. that like the, the first half of the movie is all about saying like, yeah, well, if you took everything away from Tom Cruise and you start to get the inkling that there's an insane man inside him. And I think... <laughs> I think what makes later Mission Impossible so good is that it's the series where he falls back onto what if he was an insane man. But we are not there yet. We're still that kind of no. action hero Tom Cruise who is perfect and will succeed at everything. Yeah, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's like American Bond, but it's like Bond light. The broad strokes are there. Like, yes, he's an adrenaline junkie. Yes, he has this strong moral compass. Generally, he's upstanding. I think Ethan's a bit less of a lady killer. I, I seem to remember he seduces a lady in the second one, but like, it's a little bit less, let's sleep with all the ladies. I, I mean, but that's kind of an issue with Tom Cruise, is that there are very few actresses that he has chemistry with. <laughs> yes. In, in, <laughs> Many a rumour going around Hollywood. But, like, but no, it's, it's like, there are, there are a few actresses that he has chemistry with. There are a few that he does. I think he does have chemistry with Renee Zellweger in Jeremy Maguire. I think he does have chemistry with Emily Blunt in Edge of Tomorrow. But it very much is, like, they couldn't base a movie around him having chemistry with a female lead and have him be a lady killer in that way, because it's just not Tom Cruise's vibe. And then I would also say say that like I mean he is like very sarcastic as in the way Bond is but he's less dry but that's a cultural difference I think and then the the biggest difference is from memory Ethan is always deployed in a team and it is very like he is a special agent from an agency so like he's got his people in the chair he's got his other contacts he's got his tech specialist and like Bond obviously has a little bit of that that he brushes up against occasionally but he is very much like a one-man unit who every now and then is like oh fine you help me you know there are times where Ethan's kind of going it alone but the premise is always like right he is one of many and he is he's the lead man he's the point man but like I, I feel that's like a key difference yeah it's kind of like all of these movies really take about three films to settle on like who are actors who will recur in this because otherwise <laughs> it's always like there is someone new showing up and kind of popping mm. their head in and because of the what the movies are there's so little time that they actually have to like paint a picture of a supporting cast and I mean this movie kind of shows it to a T in the fact that like they start by casting at the time quite big actors mm. and then they kill them all off within about 10 minutes it's, it's like half an hour it does take yeah. half an hour for them to like kill off the the first IMF team yeah which was originally scripted to be the entire whoever was still game cast of the TV show and then one by one they were like no not if I'm dying in 10 minutes and it's like I don't know I feel in another era with like more clout you'd get people like leaping to do something like that like oh reprise my old role that sounds like fun but the original cast not thrilled with this especially the lead 
lead who is replaced by John Voight. And yeah, I mean, the big thing here is that like they take the protagonist of all but one season of the TV show and have him <laughs> revealed as the big villain in this. Like, he's gone bad, he's gone rogue. Look, I can see why you'd be irritated by this, but given what this franchise has become since then... I don't know. It's kind of a cool little thing to to pick that up, and, and like I had no clue of that when I was like it's. I'd seen however many of these before I even knew there was a TV show, and then to much later learn, oh, John Voight's character is is the fucking lead from the TV show. Oh, that's kind of cool. But yeah, you know, he feels how he feels. So as I said, I think the big scenes here are all really good, it's just, and everything else is not and they start by giving you that like flavor of what imf do like you get the little the fake room and the rubber masks oh the rubber masks <laughs> are they still in the newer ones because i've i've seen up to four and i don't remember them being in four but that doesn't mean they weren't i mean like they, they continue to use them in fun and interesting ways in the later okay. movies i assume at some point there's like a digital one or some shit like that like i mean everyone's <laughs> seen the trailer for fallout the scene in the bathroom with cavill and and Cruz. there is a very fun kind of like track of what's going on with the face mastering that scene which i won't spoil but okay. it is there in that scene well there was certainly a, a heavy element of the second one in particular but yeah the, se- the second one is like insane because it's like <laughs> they went to john woo who is fresh off face off at this point and kind of said what if the entire cast of the film could become different people uh when you've just got one concept in your head it takes a while to get it out of there but yeah you get the whole this is what they do they create these elaborate deceptions they, they have these like incredibly realistic masks what's really interesting about this movie is apart from one every single person who's got the mask looks like tom cruise well it's interesting because in my head they always just it's another actor so it's like an impossibly realistic looking mask because it's actually them and then at the exact moment he's going to actually take it off they just cgi it together and it's like oh okay but then totally the when he goes when they go to the embassy in prague it's like that's just tom cruise and prosthetics <laughs> doing the only accent he can do there's the the russian guy who doesn't even talk or like wherever he's from like who's doing the the interrogation and that's the first big like mask pull of the movie yeah. and the second one is the one that they keep going back to of like the american senator who j- he's just tom cruise in prosthetics why aren't you in uniform tonight so it's like oh my god can you just do this one southern accent so you thought you'd be this they do the classic this tape will just self-destruct in five and like the whole movie on a plane in a cassette with a tiny little screen and a like giant ass remote that controls it all just perfect and then the dope fucking theme song obviously a staple of bond is there is a different song every time and i would say two-thirds of them are really good but we have one just really good theme song here for mission impossible although we will get a slight rearrangement of it the next time we're with this franchise. But yeah, it's a really, really, really good theme song. I can see why you wouldn't change it. And they, they totally do, the montage of clips. Like, I don't know if just growing up, I only ever saw it from after the credits have finished, the opening titles, but like, I had no memory that they do the montage of clips. And there's some fucking spoilers in there, and there's stuff that they cut from the film, like Ethan kissing Claire. I think there's a montage of Ethan kissing Claire in the opening credits, and that's not in the film. So I was like, mm. Okay. And I think if you look really carefully, you can tell that Jim is the bad guy. But 
This movie deploys the gym twist in the most fascinating way. It is really cool, I think. It's so weird how it does it, though, because the movie's kind of expecting the audience to go, like, we are also revealing what's happening right now, and whether or not Ethan Hunt is figuring out the same time is is left up in the air, sort of. Yeah, it's it's surprisingly sophisticated for something in this genre to, like, have what you're seeing not match what you're hearing and, like, not have him go, aha! Although I say that, there is a whole bunch of replaying some dialogue you just heard just so that you can follow along with what he's doing, but I think that's just them being lost in how to connect the, the dots. But speaking of those dots, that Prague mission at the, you know, post-credits is really, really good. Just it going to shit spectacularly. The iconic, surprisingly gruesome elevator death scene for uh, Emilio. Uh, uncredited here, Emilio Estevez. On memory, they cut away before his face, but they actually show, like, the thing impaling his face. I would imagine you have seen several TV versions of the film that can be shown <laughs> in the middle of the day, so they do cut away a bit earlier than that. And just seeing them all just die one by one, one blown up, one stabbed, all of that. And it's, there's a heavy focus on gadgets as well. A lot like Bond, but these are more like, I don't know how to describe them, because they're both, you know, CIA spyware, but like this feels more like real NSA-style cameras everywhere type shit, versus Bond's like, this seemingly innocuous object will actually detonate a nuclear bomb. Oh. I mean, I mean they, they do have that with the gun that is a bomb, which is yeah. obviously like the big, not MacGuffin, but like the big Chekhov's gun of the film. In that it gets used multiple times to kind of get them out of hot air. But I really like that they do the camera, like first person camera view, where like whenever he is wearing the glasses, they will shoot the film from first person point of view yeah. and only present it in that way. Which yeah. I think it all looks pretty good as well. And like, it, again, it's sort of a rarity to commit that hard to something like that because there's this like unwritten rule in Hollywood where you have to be showing your, your star's face as often as possible and to have so many scenes where it's just Tom Cruise narrating over it and stuff. And they made this decision to shoot in Prague like not long after it had been liberated from communism and stuff and, and so it hadn't been shown in Hollywood much. And it's a really incredible looking, I want to call it a set, but you know, these this series of locations in the embassy building and the sort of surrounding streets, the, uh, the Charles Bridge, all of that sort of stuff, it looks really good on film and like running through the mist that sort of just descends from out of nowhere and all that sort of stuff. For as much of the plot of the movie happens in kind of the second half, they don't leave Prague for quite a long time. Yeah, because like, you know, he meets up with with Kittredge at this at this restaurant, and I really like that he notices everyone in the restaurant is someone from the embassy or around it. Like that's a really nice touch that he puts. And it's that thing of yeah, Tom Cruise action heroes are like perfect, and Ethan Hunt has this sort of supernatural ability to do all this shit. A real Henry- primer for the born identity by the way <laughs> yeah henry henry sersney feels like the kind of guy who could come back and probably should have come back to a mission impossible movie at this point like for the amount of things that they do pick up from previous movies and obviously there's the whole joke of like the person in charge of the imf pretty much changes in every single film but i think it like it's the kind of thing where like that's the one thread where it's like oh it'd be, it'd be nice as a callback to the first movie to get someone like yeah. that back and I, I think he's good like you distrust him immediately they're doing a lot of like low angle camera work and stuff to make him seem really sinister the whole fish tank thing Tom Cruise thought this up he was he was adamant about it and he had to do the stunt himself because it didn't look realistic and this will begin a long train of uh, of him doing his own stunts that will not come back to haunt him for a while <laughs> but oh will it come back to haunt him but yeah um, he, he I, yeah, did almost I, all of his on this one and it helped keep the costs down um, because they didn't have to pay a stunt dude not that stunt dudes make a huge amount but no but I, I do really like the kind of conversation he has where he starts to realise that he's being surveyed and yeah. just the way the camera kind of pushes in and makes it a little bit 
like he feels more paranoid as it kind of goes mm. and it's got this kind of like cock angle to it and mm. I mean, this movie does look really good it does yeah. um, i'm higher on it than you are in that like i think i just think all the the connective stuff is so weak that i can't give the overall film a pass like i can be like oh these these three or four scenes are iconic but i can't say this is an overall really good movie i, I don't think it's like really good i think there are a lot better mission boss movies to come but i do yeah. think it looks stylish enough it's doing enough interesting things there's enough interesting performances like i think it isn't as cohesive as kind of later ones and that's due to a troubled production but the fact that the movie works as well as it does in spite of all that is kind of i think you just have to kind of go with it like you know him goes back to the safe house and i like the little touch of like breaking the glass as like a little intruder alarm and the convoluted like 90s ass internet shit where the where the public have no concept of what the internet really is but here's like how a secret agent would use the internet it's like what is this yeah what's like typing in searching for message boards trying to find about who the the job 3114 is and just like looking on the regular internet apparently on like message boards and trying to find things and then he sees a bible yes and he's just like oh it's not job 314 it's job 314 yeah which i'm sure someone wrote that down and was like that's so fucking clever man high five me right now and it's like but what? <laughs> because yeah, he, he, he knows that this this figure called Max is trying to buy the knock list and that someone called well no, that a job 314 and then it turns out the, the mole because they also think there's a mole in IMF and they suspect it to be Ethan and Ethan puts together that it's Job and that Job is the alias of the mole in IMF but it's like, but if they're all dead well I mean IMF is bigger but you know it's, it's just so like you have to just go with it and he's like ah Job and you're like okay but then he's emailing Max as Job and then Max figures out he's not Job but then he continues to email Max as Job and it's like what? No but he does it as Job 315 he's one uh... one one later but it's like he sees it by looking at a bible and you think <laughs> and you think the bible is just the inspiration for what happened but the bible is also the crucial part of like where the other person the actual Job got the name from because he's because <laughs> John Voight's character steals a Gideon stamp Bible from a hotel, hotel that he stayed at and he takes it overseas with him instead of just relying on the fact there will be a Bible somewhere <laughs> in Europe <laughs> like, like deeply like, Catholic Europe <laughs> and it's just like oh yeah this is the whole thing it's like what is going on I know and that's what I'm saying they were just like oh fuck how do we uh this I guess like, like I feel like they were looking around the writer's room and saw a fucking bible and were like I've got it it tracks but if you put any thought on it more than about like 15 seconds yeah. it just completely crumbles and that's the and- stuff that was flying out at me on this rewatch because obviously the big action scenes are seared into my brain but I forgot all of this and I was like oh god was it always this did I ever think this shit was like smooth and clever but I don't know and then you got this really out of place for the genre nightmare scene with John Voight like stumbling in like you let me down Ethan and all of this and then he snaps out of it and it's like this you don't get a lot of like dream sequences in in, in this genre do you? <laughs> no but also I like that it's like we just need to prove to you like John Voight isn't gone mm. he's he's earning more of a, a paycheck for this movie than some of the other guys who are only in that one scene please don't be suspicious that he's one of the biggest names on the cast but he's <laughs> dead already we promise he'll keep coming back in dreams he's not the villain I promise yeah <laughs> 
um, I, but I also really love that because it's early days of the internet. He just messages about the message boards, like the same thing, mm-hmm. but he translates it into German. It's just oh yeah, like, it's sitting there typing in all the languages he knows. Because <laughs> uh... <laughs> you imagine if like you were sat there like running a, a Bible web page, and then someone messaged you like the most cryptic bullshit in the world. I know. What about the however many others that he, he fucking spammed? <laughs> Max at BibleClub.com. It's like what is? What? <laughs> is he just guessing the email address? Yep, sure is. He just Googled, like, Bible. Or didn't even Google. Google didn't exist. He just search-stringed Bible. Yeah. Why aren't we doing a mini-series about, like, 90s computer movies? I There's not enough patience and time. So <laughs> they're, they're all aggressively awful. A Sandy B in the net is about as good as it gets. Johnny Mnemonic. <laughs> okay, sure, sure. <laughs> What about that really weird one with Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe? Fuck, what's it called? Is it The Insider? No. No, he's like, his character's called like Sid (laughs) 6.7. God. It's really, really Virtue, bad. Virtuosity. That's the one. It's really bad. Is that, is that the one that they remade from the guy who did Battlestar Galactica? I don't know. I hope not. No, that's Virtuality. That's a different thing. <laughs> anyway, Claire turns out to be alive. So at one point, there was a love triangle. I, felt, I mean, there still kind of is, but it was a more explicit, like, Ethan and Claire have the hots for each other right under Jim's nose type thing. And apparently it didn't test well, so they cut some of it. There's, like, enough of a skeleton there where you're expecting something to come of it and it's like, I don't know if it takes her legs out from under her a bit, but it's all a bit weird as they're like the last two survivors and so they're like bonded through trauma or whatever but then it's like, it doesn't go all the way in a romantic direction. It's weird, I mean there's a 24 year age difference between Emmanuel Bear and Jean Voight, which, mm-hmm. right, okay but we also have, like, as you say like the bare bones of it, like the first scene with Emmanuel Bear is when she's like knocked out and Ethan like apl- gives her the drug to like wake her up and they yeah. kind of stare lovingly at each other and then like all the stuff where like he's like heavy breathing on top of her because he doesn't trust why she's alive yeah. um, her and kissing his hand when they're in London and it's like <laughs> this is a very weird relationship yeah like frisking her and oh and when he revives her she like erotically caresses his thumb with her mouth and shit it's like what yeah. the fuck is happening here like like my partner turned to me after she starts kissing his hand when they're in London and it's like did they have sex I'm like I don't think so because he's aware <laughs> that her husband's alive now I think in one cut of the movie they did but yeah <laughs> just come from the pub with, with her husband who is yeah. alive and goes like I'm gonna cut this man yeah yeah he arranges his meeting with Max, and we never really learn the background of Max, who Max is supposed to really be. Like, is she a corrupt member of MI5 or MI6 or something? Is she just some random well-off lady from the UK who just sells international secrets and shit? Who knows? But he sets up his meeting with her and offers to steal the real goddamn knock list, and he earns her trust by, you know, saying, oh, Job's list is fake, go ahead, uh, there'll be boys from Langley, like, hopping around any minute now and they do it and they do show up so they get to safety and she's like oh how could I have doubted you it's like this doesn't really prove all that much but okay so they make this deal and Joe will be at the handover so he can get his man he has to go get the real fucking knock list which is a massive security risk to everything it's all very like huh like I know what happens but it's still very what is happening right now and it's like oh I I guess we're off to Langley then for another really 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 good scene (laughs) but my word Vanessa Redgrave is having a very fun time yeah I I think she's great and like is a fun 
fun B villain mm. to the plot of it all. Is she a villain? I mean, I guess she's trying to get the knock list. She's on the side of bad, but she's not really antagonistic towards Ethan in any way. <laughs> I feel we needed some kind of explanation as to who the fuck Max is. But who knows? So they they go to Langley, and that re- that means recruiting Jean Renault and Ving Rhames. What a team! Big Ving Rhames, like they cast him because they wanted someone who didn't look like the stereotypical hacker character in these films, and he sure doesn't. And then, Do you know what I really appreciate? What they never really show him actually hacking. That's true. It's all just kind of like you see a little bit, and then like something on a screen will flip, but there's no like him furiously typing. It's and, like... just him warning Ethan he has to get out of there now. That's all I remember him doing in both of these films. He's he's only in the first two, right? No, he's in all of them. Oh, he's in all of them. Oh, Jesus Christ! I blacked him out. Oh shit. Ving Ving Rhames is in every single Mission Impossible movie. Like he's wow. not in three an awful lot, but he is in all of them. Okay, I have seen three and four, and I do not remember him. But that's cool. But yeah, all the memory I have of him. In one and two, it's just him being like, Ethan, you've got to get out of there. And yeah, and John Renault, who his background is he's like a pilot, and that's why he can fly the helicopter at the end. But it's like, why would you go get a pilot to go? And like, a key detail here is both of them are disavowed agents. And it's like, they say that Luther like hacked into, was he hacked like the Pentagon or something? The generic hacker shit that they do in these movies. And I don't, I don't know if they say what John Renault is supposed to have done, but yeah, <laughs> here he is. The scene where they breaking down the security they have to overcome at Langley has become such a cliche but it's so fucking good like you think of like Ocean's Eleven which almost repeats lines from this and it's like you know here's a code that we will not get and then I just immediately thought of Brad Pitt being like a combination we won't have some codes we won't know you know all that sort of stuff and it feels like that must have been a 100% direct homage to Mission Impossible but this entire scene this is everything this is the whole film this is its legacy this is why there are sequels in my opinion uh and it's really fucking good yeah i mean like this like it's it's almost entirely silent which i think is oh, really so good yeah so brave almost to, to just yeah that like silence. it is it is just a pure cinematic flex from brian de palma it's so incredibly tense like i know that they win in the end but it still like plays up that tension so well and it just looks really good tom cruise coming down from the ceiling on <laughs> the kind of fucking wires is an iconic image of film and like no matter what Mission Impossible you're talking about like if you're talking about the Mission Impossible series your header image is probably going to be that image there's certainly a riff on it in the second one I don't remember if they try and do something similar to this in every one of them but you you see this clip of a moment where he almost drops to the floor to the floor and he's like trying to balance himself like that clip plays everywhere all the time and like him doing his little acrobatics to sort of be able to use the computer and catching his own sweat and they can't make any noise and and there's a mouse <laughs> or a rat. Yeah, that that that, 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 that Jean Renault has to like stab, but does it off camera. You just see its kind of corpse in the background. I know, and, and it's like, but the knife isn't in it. But you know, establishing he has the knife. Well, you saw he had the knife before. He's like, you know, no no body count. And he's like, yeah, we'll see. And it's like, you know, he later puts together that he is the accomplice. But it's like, why? Because he has a knife. Surely half the agents in the IMF have fucking knives. 
knives. Like, can he tell from the stab wound that it was this knife? Yeah, that always seemed incredibly convenient to me that he's basically just sort of... Who is a character in this film rather than in this real world I inhabit? But either way, this whole scene is amazing and I don't know if it's the best heist scene ever, but it's very fucking good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think the entire franchise is built around topping this scene from now on and I think they get to it at points, but like, okay. it's a very high bar. Yeah. They set themselves immediately. It's parodied everywhere and like, even like, the fucking Transformers comics that you've been reading recently, haven't you, Ben? <laughs> uh, they did that in that Shadow Play arc. The whole, you know, here's the breakdown of what the building is like. How will we get in? We'll descend from the ceiling, obviously. You see it everywhere. Cartoons, films, TV shows. It's everywhere. Uh, and it's because it's really fucking good and the fucking giant ass knife falling just as they've done it and landing in the table and that doofus walking in and be like, huh, a knife. I guess I could have left this here. Oh wait, I should probably tell security. I should probably tell security because I've been puking my guts out for the last ten minutes. Yes. After uh, that woman sat uncomfortably close to me in the in the mess hall. Yes, a fun moment there with with this just poor random guy. Uh, and also, is this his job? Is this his office? Does he just sit in there typing on that all day, or is it just like whenever he needs to access? I guess it's just whenever he needs to access it. But it feels like he goes in there an awful lot for some thing that is like supposed to be quite top secret yeah and it's like it can't be your office like there's no there's no pictures like, around because like, <laughs> like he he's in there and then he goes out to go read a newspaper for about five minutes apparently <laughs> and then he goes back in and then he leaves and goes back and leaves and goes back and yeah, yeah. and it's just it's a very confusing work schedule it yeah. leads to a lot of tension <laughs> but i also don't think he has a real job <laughs> How dare you? You think they didn't come up with a full story for this man? Yeah. But, you know, the scene around it, great, and them just sort of cruising on out of there in the fire truck and everything. It's just, mwah, great scene. And then Tom Cruise just close-up magic. Yes! Tom Cruise doing Tom Cruise-ass, like, being charming, doing sleight of hand. Uh, no trickery, legit Tom Cruise doing all of that. Great stuff. He does his own stunts. He does his <laughs> Do we call this a stunt? This like... is definitely a stunt. <laughs> okay. I either Tom Cruise knew to do this before this movie, or mm. Tom Cruise is the craziest motherfucker alive and look close up magic so this shot would work. Dude, look, you've seen Tom Cruise. There is no chance Tom Cruise isn't the type of person that hadn't learned sleight of hand at some point in his life. Like he is definitely someone who tried to become a magician in an <laughs> earlier part of his life. And I really like the touch that Krieger did have the disc the whole time. He suddenly turns on him. He's like, "You're not doing anything." without me and he's like you think i would give you the knock list and then he goes through all of this shit and he throws it in the bin his fake copy and then it turns out it's the real one and ethan hunt just imagined all of you know he just improvised all of this on the spot and it's like what if he'd broken the knock list when he threw it angrily in the bin or kept the disc anyway or something like i guess he would have had to pickpocket it off him later felt jim reveals himself to be alive and claims that kittredge is the mole which, you know, if you're real stupid, you might believe because they have tried to make Kittredge seem evil. But Ethan had already started to put together that it is Phelps because of the whole Bible thing. And then, as you said, this this quite interesting conversation where they're, they're walking it through with each other. Like, oh, how would he have done this? And we're seeing what Jim actually did. And by the way, the like first person view of him getting shot didn't look convincing even at the beginning of the film. Because <laughs> you can see the bend in the wrist and it's like... Okay, then. <laughs> but they're watching it on, like, little tiny wrist watches or whatever, yeah. so I can imagine it being like... I mean, what's that? It's like 108p or something for image clarity. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, all the P's, all the I's. It's an interesting thing, and like to see Ethan not actually press that, and just sort of in his own head, he's figured it out. Well, that's the thing. So they, the most interesting part of it is, and it, the, the kind of bit that makes you realise that it's probably Ethan figuring it out is the double take of who blew up the car, because the initial cut of that is Claire did it, and then he goes, "Oh no, wait, he would have had time to go from the bridge to blow up the car," and then it's Jim in the in the river kind of doing it and that's the only kind of tell that the scene gives that this is ethan figuring it out and, and then he gets to play this like invisible ninja in the, in the fight in the sort of the handover of the disc on the train with him you know calling max up and it's like okay we can't see him we haven't seen tom cruise on the screen for over three minutes what's going on <laughs> and the ridiculous stereo gun that jim has because he can't get a gun on a train which is totally not true you don't get i mean i guess if it's the euro star i guess it's supposed to be they call it like the tng or, or the t something tnc i don't know it's a very fast train that tom cruise had to schmooze their ability to use they turned down brian de palma and then tom cruise took like their chairman out for dinner or something and the next day they were given permission to use the train but yeah he's got this like it's like a boom box and he takes parts of it apart and screws together this gun and it's like i mean i guess that's cool but ultimately meaningless because there are like no gunshots in this movie there are no... Ethan doesn't fire a gun once. There's not really much in the way of a shootout. And I'm like, doesn't this dude end up becoming like a Jason Bourne Bond ass, like, just murders everyone type character? I mean, there's, of it a, here. There's, there's not much gunshots, really. Like, yeah. other people use guns more than Ethan does. He's more running. Oh, Tom Cruise, always running. Always running. I mean, I'm also very confused about, like, the fact that Kittredge gets to London and then goes, take me to London Terminus. It's like, there's, like, 18 London Terminuses. What what the hell does this mean? Don't you worry about it. Anyone outside, you know, this is America's view of every other country. It's like, oh, they're tiny. There's one city, there's one station. It's great. Ethan has, like, sent him tickets for the right train to, like, yeah, hey. I mean, I mean I, I'm assuming it's King's Cross. So they've gone from the Liverpool Street to King's Cross, which is very weird for me because I'm sat there going like, this is the station I go to every single morning. Know, and seeing fucking phone booths with the old BT logo on them and stuff, like, what is all of this? I haven't seen a phone booth out in the wild in a long time. And then but he's like, oh yeah, we can get from Tower Bridge to <laughs> to King's Cross in, in 20 minutes. I'm like, Look. Mm. Look. <laughs> That's uh, going to be some very clear roads. Look, they're about to climb on top of a fucking train, Ben. Like, there's there's no room for realism here. Yeah, he sits there as Jim in the baggage car. Claire turns up and is like, ah, we've gotten away with it. And then it's obviously it's fucking Tom Cruise in the mask. And everything is revealed. And at first, it looks like they're just doing something subverted with the camera. Like, you see, like, a first-person camera, like, go up against that little grate. And then you're like, oh, Kittred, uh, Jim must be in there. And then he's not at first. And it's like, oh, maybe they're just trying to trick you. And then, yeah, Jim is just totally just right next to him. And it's this sort of escalating series of, of like, aha, aha, aha type moments. And then he fucking, he fucking shoots his wife. Like, does, does he give a shit about his wife? Like, he's like, I knew you'd take the bait because, like, I tested the goods for my and it's like, that's your wife. <laughs> like, what's happening here? He's an evil man. Yes, but <laughs> has he been married to her for however long just that he could one day pull this move on someone? Like, I don't know. I don't know. But... And maybe it plays better if he does actually have sex with her. Maybe. And, you know, Ethan gotchas him back and puts the glasses on and Kittredge is watching it all through his little wristwatch. And it's like, ah, shit, everyone knows you're alive again. You're screwed. And then they end up on top of the fucking train and Tom Cruise insisted on a, on a wind machine so powerful it would manipulate his face. Um, and there was one in Europe and they got it. 
So, nice flex, Tom. And yeah, it looks, I'm not going to say it looks super convincing, but for a, a film of this era with green screen technology not being what it is now, it's a pretty good looking they're on top of a train type scene. Like, I think that wind machine does help. Like, you can see that the wind is like making their fucking faces go all weird and shit. The ridiculousness of a helicopter going through the fucking tunnel is, <laughs> is something else. But the gum that is, you know, they set it up at the beginning. It's like, oh, when you combine these two halves, boom. And then he uses it in the restaurant and then for it to come back at the end and be the thing he uses to kill them it's like okay that's nice that's nice signposting you've got here and it's good that he did use it earlier on so that you weren't just waiting for that to come up in bond when they tease a gadget and then he hasn't used it and they were at the climax of the film it's like well he's obviously going to use the the magical laser wristwatch or something <laughs> but they they used it earlier on to take that out of your mind and yeah i don't know it's it's not really much in the way of a, a final confrontation because i'm sitting here now tell it talking about it and i don't really remember how it plays out beyond he forces him to get into the tunnel and then he jumps to the helicopter and puts the gum on and then he jumps back or he, he is blown back by the explosion or whatever but it's like it's not like a big grand fist fight it's not a grand shootout but i guess that's not really what it's about at this no, stage i mean <laughs> even even down to like jim phelps is you just kind of like disappears mm-hmm. for a second i was like is the movie gonna go on longer and he's gonna like walk back to the train but no he just got <laughs> just got crushed under the wreckage yeah he's just gone i um, did i did get confused for a second i was like oh when's he gonna cut his head off with the thing i was like no wait that's speed yes <laughs> yeah the blade's coming to a stop right in front of his neck and all that and, and then luther hands the knock list back to kittredge and they make a deal they arrest max and then max is like oh my lawyers will will do this and he's like we'll keep this out of the court it's like what does that mean are you gonna like fucking let her go and like no, they're gonna bl- they're gonna black bagger <laughs> do some waterboarding yeah and luther and ethan end up back in the imf and and it's all great and we have sequels galore ahead of us but I, i'll just keep saying it like the the prague scene the vault scene and the train scene are all like really 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 good and everything else is a big giant mess and it's very obvious they didn't have a script to hand <laughs> you know there's enough here and like it was a nice big hit out of nowhere and i mean that's the, that's the thing is at the end of the day the movie made almost 500 million dollars at the mm. box office and i have to assume that most the third highest grossing movie in 1996 mm. i have to assume most of its money came from the u.s rather than being like a worldwide total as well yeah. i think they haven't ever not been making bond really and and GoldenEye, I think, was a pretty big hit. This is like a year after the longest break the Bond's ever taken, because it's like 89, yeah. and then Bond doesn't come back till 95, and they kind of hint that they're going to start like a little bit of a reboot, and GoldenEye's a lot more serious than Bond was. Yes. It, it slowly starts to devolve as it goes on. And well, they I don't know, those, those two Dalton ones are serious, they're just very different. <laughs> There's that super fucking violent one with, with the whole like Miami Vice type shit going on. Um, it's a, it, it, it's it, an answer to it. We've got another player in the game, as it were. And I don't know if they knew the moment this came out they were going to do more, but I think it certainly was a it's a hell of a debut for a franchise. I mean, it feels like there was like a mini resurgence of movies about spies in the late nineties that were like from TV shows because the Avengers is a couple years after this. I feel. Yeah, yeah, not not the Avengers, Avengers, but the Avengers, Avengers, uh, the Avengers, Avengers, <laughs> uh, the original. I, mean, I can't even type Avengers into Google. Yeah. Like, coming up with like the fucking movies that's what marvel did even though it can't be named that in the uk exactly avengers must be called avengers assemble because the avengers already existed that very well-known movie starring ray 
Ryan's name Thurman. And then that very much better known TV show. <laughs> yes. So I think by the time we're done with this, this will be on the lower end of things, but it's still good. I think a lot of movies owe a lot to it. It's kind of insane that this is probably the weakest first step for any of the three of these. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I, I've not seen Born Identity all the way through. I'm really excited. <laughs> that's, like Every time I see Born Identity, I get to about the scene in the office or the apartment or wherever it is, and they have the like, the big fight in there, and then they mm. stop. And then if I come back, I come back with, with the scene in the grass and the sniper. Yeah, Clive. Like, that, like that, that's, that's like, my knowledge of that movie is basically the chunk up until that apartment scene and then in a field. That is most of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure but... I've seen most of the movie. I've just never seen it all yeah, in one yeah. sitting. And then the only other Bourne movie I've seen is Jason Bourne. And I, that's <laughs> the, uh, yeah, and I haven't seen Jason Bourne. Yeah. <laughs> that's the only one I haven't. I think it's going to sit on the sort of top of the lower tier is how I would assess this. But speaking of assessing, we've come up with some regular segments to assess these movies by. So we have Villain Watch returning from Ben and Matt's Marvelous Journey. Bond villains are a huge huge staple of of this genre and i think all the three or four we have here are solid but not really memorable like you are naturally predisposed to not like john voight which is wild because when they cast him they didn't think anyone would suspect he'd be a villain and it's like i feel everyone thinks that guy's a fucking asshole but maybe they just didn't know at the time it's a nice twist to have you know the hero of the old show become the villain um, Kittredge is a decent red herring, I think. Like, he's very unlikable. I, I agree, it would have been nice to see him come back uh, as a sort of connective thing between the, fr- the the sequels. Then Jean Renault was in that pedophile movie, so fuck him. You're also naturally, generally <laughs> disposed to not like him. And Max is is fun as well, but then none of them are, like, huge standouts. Like, there's no, there's no Jaws, there's no Odd Jobs sort of henchman who's iconic here. There's no huge... Villain. Yeah, we're, we're not at the point yet where Bond is just casting Oscar winners for every single movie. Yeah, and also, by the by, I think most of these movies, the villain watch is going to be like that because all of the iconic villains in this sort of franchise, they are all in the past for the most part, but there's going to be some really good performances at least. We'll see where you land on the Mission Impossible stuff, but I do think the villains are going to get better okay. with this series. Well, um, one of my favourite performances in any of these movies is in the third Mission Impossible movie. Yes, oh god, yes. Oh, I'm sexually excited. Our next section is, how did they survive? And this isn't actually that bad. Like, aside from everything that happens on the train, Ethan doesn't do anything that dangerous in this first one. So I'm kind of willing to, like, give this a bit of a pass. But Yeah, I mean, that thing is, like, he's got a stunt harness on, but that's something that they wear on set normally for the, mm-hmm. for the big one. He hasn't gone into, like, full Tom Cruise insane mode where, what if we attach a camera to this plane and take off? <laughs> which, which is where the series is going. It's just kind of like, obviously he's doing the stunts and it makes the movie look better, mm. but it's being done in a far more controlled, like, on a set with green screens yeah. way than the insanity of, the, like, let's go to a location and do a stunt that, like, my insurance premium must be insane. <laughs> I am told he could have drowned in that fish tank scene, but who knows. Uh, so this one, relatively mild, things will get crazy. And finally, female agency. A great pun there. So women are not treated that well. Histor- like, Bond girls are a cliche and they are generally eye candy who have sex with James Bond shortly after meeting him and then die or flirt with him all for the whole film and then bang him at the end as the credits play. 
and that has thankfully mostly been retired but it's nice to check in on how women are treated in these films and i think taking away that full-on love triangle with claire does cut her legs out from under her a bit and she does still get sort of like roughed up by ethan and like still has to die at the hands of a lover and all of that which is still after the the incredibly creepy line of her like of john boyd going i got a taste of her and (laughs) realized that you wouldn't be able to sample the goods there and it's just like "Mm, okay yeah all that is bad but it makes him it makes him more villainous which is yes but i i do think she has a decent role in the heist you're expecting her to like seduce the guy or something it's like oh you'll wear like a little pencil skirt and and lean over or something and distract him but it's not really that she just sort of is subtle enough in planting a a bug on him and and like drugging his drink and at the beginning as well like i guess her role isn't as big there but you know she's treated as a team member it's not like oh and you're just here as a pair of legs and a skirt she is more involved because like the original scene with chris and scott thomas and ingeborga not even gonna attempt the surname (laughs) where they're in there and you understand what chris and scott thomas's role is but Mm -hmm you don't understand what the other woman's role is because they've got these two women who are both like surveillance and one's in the car and they're both very much not involved as much as like Emilio Estevez and and Tom Cruise and whatnot are. And as a sort of secondary, Kristen Scott Thomas is really good as well, I think. Like she's fun at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I think think all all three women who kind of get to give a bit of a performance do the best that they can do with the the material they're given. Vanessa Redgrave's obviously having the most fun. Kristen Scott Thomas actually leaves quite a big impression. I think I remember her more in this movie than yeah. I do Emmanuel Bear. I think she said I only have to be in the film for 20 minutes and I die in Tom Cruise's arms. Of course I wanted to do it. Or something <laughs> like that. So, you know, it's not it's not awful treatment I wouldn't say, but it would be nice to see an even bigger female presence. So maybe yeah. we'll get one as we go. Yeah, but. I mean, like, my, my partner asked me when I told her that we were doing Bond Born and Mission Impossible and she kind of said, like, are you going to do a female action series? And I was just like, think about that for a second. What <laughs> comparative female action series could we possibly do because Hollywood is so bad at this none do of them we get do... sequels even if they get one movie yeah do we get Charlie do we do Charlie's Angels that first one fucks man do Sam Rockwell just... half star added come on I want to do it just for Justin Theroux's Irish accent Game of the Rangs and like, but like <laughs> god I, watched... I forgot all about that I'm sorry I need a moment I watched the latest Charlie's Angels the other week and I was like this is kind of bad and that's even with a movie that features a very horny Kristen Kristen Stewart and Naomi Scott <laughs> Mm-hmm. Ask questions, everyone. I think that will do. Chronologically, it should be Mission Impossible 2 next, but we wanted to bounce back and forth, so we're going to do Born Identity next, and then we will do Mission Impossible 2. You know, just so we can have some comparison here. And uh, I am really, really looking forward to watching Born Identity again, so that will be next week. Stay tuned to EnterTheRealWorld.com. Like, comment, subscribe. Mike and Matt on SoundCloud. Check out all the podcasts, uh, all the written stuff. It's a new year. Maybe some new features, some new stuff. Who knows? Uh, Maybe you'll have done a podcast on Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, I'm seeing that tomorrow, and I look forward to it. I forgot that Mike Thomas hates The Last Jedi and is thus wrong. That'll be fun. But Ben and I, we love The Last Jedi, so we go with God. Thank you, Ben, for our first episode of Secret Agent Men. Matt's looking forward to sub-hour-long episodes. (laughs) And yet, one hour, five minutes record. Bye, everyone! (laughs) Secret Agent